Welcome back, sports fans, to a special Australian Open Roundup podcast today. Um, as we're here in the aftermath of, I think, what has to be one of the most incredible Australian Opens um, of at least, you know, the, the last few years. Uh, perhaps coming into the tournament with Djokovic out, um, there might have been a few fears that it would be a little bit down this year, but that was certainly not the case, um, capped off by, you know, one of the greatest matches you'll ever see um, between Nadal and Medvedev in the men's final. Um, but really, any discussion of this Australian Open has to start with Ash Barty's incredible performance, not only in the final, uh, which she won in straight sets, but throughout the entire tournament, um, she was certainly a level above every other player. The first player since Serena in 2017 to win without dropping a set. I'm here with Tusha Main, um, incredible, incredible Australian Open, um, but an even more incredible by Ash Barty, doing it uh, for the first time in, I think, over 30 years, uh, over 40 years, I think, um, at this, an Australian winning at the Australian Open. Uh, thanks, Ted. Um, you know, it's, it was just incredible for uh, incredible moment in Australian sport, uh, seeing Ash Barty win that, you know, first time since Chris O'Neill in 78. You know, she was there to actually uh, take the trophy out, you know, to, to the centre of Rod Laver Arena to start proceedings there. And, um, you know, despite the fact that she was, you know, a big favourite, you know, there was always that sense of uncertainty, you know, in a final, uh, you know, going in, you know, you're not entirely sure whether she can get it done, but, you know, her quality, you know, spoke for itself. And, uh, you know, that fight that she showed, especially in the second set from 5-1 down uh, to come back and win, uh, that second set and the title was, you know, really just the cherry on top of what has been a truly dominant uh, Australian Open. And I think one of the most dominant displays of tennis we've seen in a long time here at the Australian Open, from certainly. And, yeah, it's been, you know, too good. Too good from Barty. Indeed. And just quickly, what does make her, her so good? Um, that's the first question. And secondly, you know, how successful can she be in her career with the way she's she's playing at the moment she's got what three grand slams now how many more do you think she can get well i think the, there are many different things that make body well i think firstly is how versatile of you know a player she is i think what she does really well is pick out the weaknesses of a lot of her opponents so i think in the fourth round against nissimova she was doing a really good job of moving her around the court you know and taking her out of a comfort zone with of you know hitting big balls and uh, it made Enesimova have to, you know, move a lot more and created a lot more enforced errors. Um, I think the same thing happened in, you know, the semifinal against Keys. Uh, Barty was really using that backhand slice well to, you know, take pace off the ball and deny Keys any chance to hit, you know, big ground strokes within her hitting zone. So she's really good at, you know, exploiting her opponent's weaknesses, as well as that she really doesn't have many weaknesses in her game. You know, her serve is one of the best in women's tennis, you know, despite the fact that, you know, she's probably one of the shorter players on tour. You know, she wins 82% of her first first serve points when she gets a first serve in, which, you know, led the tournament um, in the women's, which is pretty ridiculous considering that she probably, she played the most matches of anyone uh, at the tournament. So she's serving really well. And as well as that, the backhand slice. I mean, it's such a brilliant weapon for her not only defensively but offensively she's able to you know pretty much knife the ball into the ground and uh create you know 
sort of high balls that she can attack or, you know, create unforced errors uh, uh, off, off her opponent. So in terms of how many she can win, you know, she's only 25. And sort of where women's tennis is at, there don't really seem to be many contenders that are really at her level. I think the only players that could probably beat her are Saka at her best. And, um, you know, a couple of the other big hitters at their best as well. Um, probably talking about Sabalenka and likes of Paula Bedosa. Uh, she's also very good and seems to be an up-and-coming player. Um, but at the moment, she's looking really good. She's undefeated. And uh, obviously, we'll see where she goes next. Uh, I think prob- I'm not sure she'll take part in the Sunshine Double in, in March. But, uh, you know, she'll certainly take part in the French. And who knows, this win streak could go on for a very, very long time. Indeed, and uh, you speak about the different shots she has. It is, it is great to to watch um, her against the the power hitters of tennis, as they they say. And Collins, I think, definitely being one of them, and just annoying them by, you know, the slices and all the different shots she had. It, it was fantastic to watch. Um, on Danielle Collins, um, did very well to make the final, um, and uh, had some big wins over over Cornea, I think, and Mertens earlier on. Uh, in the tournament, how would you rate her tournament? And uh, just as a player, um, it, good signs for her? Uh, for sure. I think, you know, her style of play is really good nowadays in sort of women's tennis. I think a lot of the players that she played, um, you know, allowed her to, you know, demonstrate the strengths of her game, which was really attacking off the second serve, right? And we saw that against Barty sort of in the first set. You know, she she was doing really well off the second serve to you know attack Barty and you know make you know take time away from her. And I think Barty only won she won less than fifty percent of her second serve points uh, in the final, which is generally lower than average for her. So that goes to show how good Collins is of attacking straight away and really giving herself giving herself a chance to win the point outright. Um, I think also with Collins, another big part of her game is her serve. She serves really well. Uh, serves in the 180s uh, at the tournament and sort of consistent in the 170s. Um, and I think one of the main reasons why she lost uh, last night was just, again, Barty was able to take her out of her comfort zone, you know, consistently give her deep balls and force her to play defensively. And with Barty's backhand slice not actually working as well on Saturday night, it was her forehand that really sort of did the damage. Um, she's in the top 10 now, Daniel Collins. And um, we'll see where she goes from here. Um, I think I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, having a good year. Uh, it was an interesting tournament um, for a lot of the women's players. Some of the favourites coming in uh, struggled and went out fairly early. Asaka, the big one, losing to Anasanova in round three. Um, Zachary losing to Pagula in round four. Halep also uh, losing to, to Cornet. Um, you know... Out of, out of those ones, I, I guess, who were the disappointments in, and what went wrong for some of those big, big uh, favourites coming in? Um, I think with Osaka, I think, you know, she played a really good game game against Nisimova. Um, for, for me, anyway, that was the match of the tournament on the women's side of the draw. You know, she played incredibly well, um, except Nisimova was just, you know, that bit better. Um, and it goes to show the level that Nisimova was at with her t- tennis. Um, Maria Sakri was a little bit dis- disappointing to see her go out against Pagula um, Pagula played a very smart game uh, you know sort of slowing down the pace and 
you know, forcing Sakari to sort of um, change up her style of play. And with Halep, I think the conditions got to her. Um, she's only just come back uh, from, you know, a long period out, out of play. And um, after, you know, sort of winning the first tournament, the Melbourne Summer Cert, you know, it was really tough conditions out there against Cornet. I think temperature was above 30 degrees and they were playing out there for nearly three hours. So, you know, obviously physically, she's not quite at the level she was at, you know, three, four years ago where, you know, she was world number one. But, um, you know, it's still positive signs for Simona Halep. Uh, I think some other disappointing results were from, I think, the third and sixth seeds. Uh, Muguruza going out in the second uh, second round to Cornet, um, I think was very disappointing considering that she had a very good end to the year, uh, winning the uh, tour finals. And Contevade as well. Uh, she made the semifinals in Sydney and she also went out in the second round to a youngster, uh, Torsen, uh, from Denmark. So, uh, obviously, a lot of the big names uh, sort of struggled to get, in, get go deep uh, at this Open. But I think that with women's tennis at the moment, I think the level of inconsistency, um, although the product, I think the level of play is really good, uh, the sort of inconsistency that is present uh, poses some risks that I think will rear their ugly heads in a few years' time. Okay. And just quickly, do you have any, any reason why that's the case, uh, the consistency, or is it just sort of an unfortunate fact at the moment? I think the reason why it's a big problem is because tennis, it's a sport that relies on rivalries, right? We rely on sort of those great rivalries like we've seen in, you know, men's tennis has been so, so popular in the last 20 years because of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray, you know, for, you know, the better part of a decade, you know? So when, when those guys play each other in those big matches, there's a sense of, you know, anticipation to see, you know, these giants go against each other, right? I think the golden age of women's tennis was in the early 2000s because, you know, you had a bunch of top players like, like Justine Hennens, the Williams sisters, Marie Sharapova, uh, Kim Kleisters, you know, all these players. And there was a sense of anticipation that those big names would go up against each other. Uh, I think in today, today's day and age with women's tennis, when you have, you know, a lot of different people making it, you know, to sort of deep runs and slams. It makes it hard to sort of like root for someone because often you don't know, you know, who the players are. So I think, I think it was really put on show. I think at the U S open when we had Raducanu win. I think not to take any credit away from Raducanu was a brilliant tournament from her and she played really well. But I think if a qualifier can, you know, just come along and, you know, beat majority of the best tennis players in the world, you know, and, you know, win a grand slam, I think goes to show that, you know, we need more consistency from the top of women's tennis. Because I think when you get more consistency, you'll get more matches at the top and that'll create the rivalries and bring the interest, you know, to the sport. Do you think any of it could be attributed to sort of the focus on power hitting that a lot of players in the women's game also seem to have now? Um, you know, and we've seen players who don't do that, like Barty being very successful. I think that's absolutely a point, Ted. I think, you know, a lot of Serena's, you know, had a massive influence on women's tennis. I think, you know, especially in sort of the 2010s, Serena would just rely mainly on her power, really, to win her games. And, you know, she won multiple Grand Slams, you know, really nearly did the calendar slam in 2015. And, you know, that sort of spawned the likes of Osaka, Sabalenka, 
you know, and, you know, Bedosa and these, you know, younger players that really come out and, you know, want to hit the ball hard. And the problem is with those types of players is that they don't really have a plan B uh, when it's sort of not working, right? I think Osaka in particular last year at the US Open, it really showed. Um, you know, her loss to Leila Fernandez in the third round, when she, her game wasn't working, she wasn't able to sort of change it up and find a way to regain that consistency. So I think that's certainly a point and contributes to that. I think having said that, you can still, you know, this, you should still be able to uh, create a level of consistency within your tennis, regardless of your level of play. Um, and I think Barty does a good job of, you know, changing her gameplay to, she's an exception, I think, in women's tennis. And I think what we just need to see is, you know, maybe this sort of big power hitting, maybe, you know, step back in, favor of you know a little bit more consistent play because i think that's going to be that's what really sort of wins grand slams it's consistency more so than just um you know one or two high level uh matches where you're unbeatable and then another match where you're not feeling it sure but well, there you go tusha has laid down the gauntlet to women's tennis there uh just to finally wrap off um the women's side of the draw you do have have some up and coming players um, that have shown some good signs, Suryontek and, and Badosa um, in particular. Uh, both of them, you know, did pretty well. Suryontek getting through to both of them getting through to the quarterfinals. I think. Oh no, Suryontek getting through to the semis, um, uh, but losing to Collins um, while Badosa lost to Keys in the quarter to Americans. Um, how do you uh, how do you see their development going forward? Um, can they become players that you know can consistently challenge for Grand Slams? I think Sviontek for sure. I think she is one of the great talents that we have in women's tennis, and I think her game uh, is really, really good. It's very consistent. She hits with a lot of topspin, and you know that style is really you know it allows for consistency. I think actually in the quarters and the semis, Sviontek wasn't actually. I think towards the back end of the tournament, she actually wasn't at her best. Um, I think she actually played really well in Adelaide, um, making the semifinals before losing to Barty. Um, and that's what led me to predict her to make the final. Uh, obviously, she fell just short. Uh, but, you know, she's still got a long career ahead of her. And I think with more and more experience, I think, you know, she'll feel more comfortable, you know, going deep in Grand Slams. And I think she'll certainly be one of the great rivals i think for body sort of in the next you know three four years uh as for bedosa she is also a great talent uh you know making the fourth round actually in the quarterfinals but you know running into madison keys who's who was in brilliant form you know just hitting hitting winners for fun really and you know she won you know maiden masters 1000 title in indian wells last year uh, she's a great clay court player um probably one of the favorites for the french open this year um, but we'll see. I think both of those two are, you know, great talents in women's tennis. Okay, and we move on to the men's draw now. Um, and the, the final, it will go down as history as historic for Nadal uh, becoming the first men's player to uh, record 21 Grand Slams, uh, the most in history. But it was much more than that as a match. And for much of it, uh, it definitely did not seem that Nadal would get anywhere close um, to getting that record Grand Slam. Uh, at, at kind of the, the low point of the game for him, he was down two sets um, and had three break points against him 
there in the third set, but somehow managed to come back um, and win it in you know one of the, the great tennis matches you ever see. Um, how did he do it, basically? Well, I think I think many tennis fans are just scratching their heads as to how he did it. I think you know, I think first of all the circumstances that you know he had going into the tournament. You know, he just recovered from you know a massive foot injury you know, out of the tour since the French Open. Um, pretty much anyway. And as well as that, he got COVID just before, you know, coming here as well. So, you know, for him to fight from two sets to love down, especially after the first two sets had already lasted longer than two hours, um, to come back and win was, I think, unbe absolutely unbelievable. Um, I think what we saw uh, from Nadal, in the, I think in the first two sets, Nadal didn't serve particularly well at all, um, especially in the second set. Um, you know, he had multiple, he was up a break twice, I think, and he had his serve broken twice and then eventually, um, obviously losing that set in the tie break, which was really disappointing for him. I think, I think in an, probably on another day, he wins that second set. Uh, but in the third set, you know, he served a lot better and sort of, I think there's always a mindset change, right? When you're down, uh, and you need to come back in a match. Um, I think often it happened with Medvedev as well. I think, uh, he had break points. Uh, I think Ojale Sim had a match point against him uh, in the fourth set. And he had break points in the third set, actually, Felix Ojale Sim to sort of get ahead and put the game to bed. But when Medvedev saved those, uh, you know, I think something clicks in your head, just like, all right, I can do this. Right. And I think the same thing happened to Nadal. Right. Something clicked after he saved those three break points and it was like, all right, here we go. I can do this. And, you know, he broke Medvedev's serve and took the third set. Uh, the fourth set was really close. Um, obviously a mammoth game to take the break in the fourth set and then hold. And then the fifth set was really close. You know, both guys served really well, but uh, Nadal held for, in a 13-minute game. You know, that was a big one. Uh, he faced break points in that and sort of hit first serves and all the break point opportunities Medvedev had in that fifth set. And despite not taking the chance at 5-4, he did it 7-5 and probably the biggest win of his career, I think. Um, probably up there with his, you know, Wimbledon final against Federer in 08. But, you know, this was huge. You know, 21 Grand Slams, you know, the second, is the second person in the open era uh, to do all Grand Slams twice uh, alongside Djokovic, of course. And, you know, anytime he wins a slam that isn't the, you know, French Open, it's huge for him because, you know, it's pretty much, they're like gold when you're going up against the likes of Djokovic and now Medvedev, you know, who are so good on, you know, these surfaces. Yeah, it was an incredible game to watch because at the start, you know, Medvedev had all the answers, didn't he? And um, Nadal making so many unforced errors, even, you know, smashes it hit going right into the net. Um, but then they both sort of got, then Nadal sort of got on top, then they both got tired and they sort of seemed to just, go for, for winners or, you know, throw caution to the wind a little bit. But then in the fifth yeah. set, it was that real battle against so you had so many different aspects of the game. Um, Nadal, his use of, uh, of drop shots and, and changing things up, doing things that he doesn't normally do, um, in a, that isn't really his game. Does that just show how, how great he is? I think so. I think his ability would, to adapt. I think Jim Courier was saying, you know, he's probably one of the best problem solvers in all of tennis in terms of figuring out his opponent and then you know, sort of dismantling them. And I think that's what he did. Um, 
I think I was constantly calling for Nadal, you know, in the second set to show a lot of lot more intent. Um, I think he he didn't show a lot of aggressive intent uh, in the first two sets, and I think that cost him, you know, because I think he was just coasting and trying to sort of move the Medvedev around the court, but you know, Medvedev wasn't going to miss uh, in those first two sets at least. So, you know, he showed a lot more intent, you know, going for drop shots uh, in the third set, and more importantly, you know, take go, being aggressive with that backhand. You know, he went a lot to that backhand down the line uh, late in that match. And I think that was really important for him because Medvedev was targeting that backhand because um, obviously it's been a weakness of Nadal for a while. And, um, you know, with Nadal being able to create off that wing, you know, kind of leaves Medvedev out of options in terms of what he can do to sort of, um, you know, exploit Nadal. So, you know, he, he did really well on that backhand. And I think... You know, his ability to take Medvedev out of his comfort zone, you know, move him around, uh, consistently create, you know, high bouncing balls that are out of his hitting zone uh, was really good for Nadal. Nadal, you know, is a good matchup. Medvedev is a good matchup for him because, you know, he can take Medvedev out of his comfort zone. But nevertheless, he had to fight to do it. And he certainly did that. And now now with 21, Roland Garros next, um, potentially getting to 22 there, just when we kind of maybe feared that the, the battle was over with Djokovic just looking unbeatable. Now it's wood back to life. It's fantastic. Um, but from Medvedev's side of things, um, you know, played a played an incredible match. Was there much he, he could have done differently? We know the the crowd, as it always seems to do, had its impact of the, on him um, in the fourth in the fourth set. He looked he looked a bit down, um, but then he came roaring back in the fifth again. As you say, broke broke Nadal back. Um, and then as an adult fan, I, I was getting a bit worried there, but um, could he have done anything much better um, to get the win or was Nadal, you know, just playing too well um, at, towards the end? Well, I think, you know, if you had to split it up, I think 80, 85% of that was just Nadal was able to, you know, come back and retaliate. I think Medvedev t- didn't really change up his game from the first two sets. So I think, in the first set particularly, I think what he did really well was, you know, attack off the balls that he wanted to. Um, and I think although he did well in the fifth set to attack, I think in the third and fourth set, he kind of, you know, sort of lost his way and he was kind of trying to just coast, um, you know, into, you know, lucking into a break of serve. Um, so I think in that regard, you know, I think he could have been a little bit more aggressive, especially in the fourth set. Um, but otherwise, I think Nadal just did a really good job of, um you know, not allowing Medvedev to sort of get on the to get on the front foot. You know, constantly creating with the forehand and the backhand. You know, constantly pushing him back into the court, and as well as that, using a slice to give himself time. You know, to you know, sort of get back into the point. So I think Medvedev. You know, as well as that, the crowd, as you mentioned. You know, it's never easy. You know, going up against one of the big three, especially someone like Nadal, who has so much you know support behind him and. I think it was really sad seeing Medvedev in the press conference kind of just, you know, dejected uh, regarding how little crowd support he had in that match. And throughout the tournament, really, I think, you know, the match against Kyrgios uh, to start, and then he had the, you know, match against Felix in the quarterfinals where people were backing him for an upset, and then Tsitsipas and his Greek contingent that really liked to support him. So it was really just an uphill battle for him. And... You know, he was talking about how he doesn't want to play tennis anymore. He just wants to play tennis for, you know, the people that are close to him rather than the fans because he doesn't feel like there's support for him. 
I think a lot of that is just, you know, the dejection from the loss. Uh, but, you know, I think hopefully in two, three years, you know, he has that crowd. Uh, you know, he's already building it. You know, he's been in his fourth Grand Slam final now, uh, which I think is as many as Dominic Team has had. You know, so in terms of that next gen, you know, he's right up there. And, you know, hopefully in the next two, three years, you know, the crowd and, you know, fans can really see him for, you know, the player and the person that he is. And a great player to watch also. Everyone talks about the different style that he has, you know, returning everything much slower. Um, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what makes him different. Well, firstly, I think, you know, where he returns from, I think that's the most noticeable thing about when you're, anyone watches him. I think he's, he returns from, you know, four or five metres behind the baseline. And a lot of people, you know, like scoff at that idea and like, why would you do that? I think the main point of that is, is to, you know, give himself a big swing at the return. Um, you know, when he's given a big swing at the return, he can, you know, manipulate the ball more and uh, create a really good return off that and easily get himself back into the rally. Right. Um, and more importantly, it doesn't give a lot of players free points off their serve. Like, as I said in sort of the last podcast, Kyrgios, you know, he gets a lot of points off his serve, you know, against, you know, majority 95% of opponents. But against Medvedev, he didn't, he didn't much at all. You know, and that goes to show like how many balls Medvedev can get back by sitting that far back in the court. And that's really big part of his game. You know, if you're always getting balls back, you're always going to, you know, put yourself in a chance to win the point. And that's the reason why he's one of the best returners on, on the tour. As well as that, his serve, although I think it's, you know, at times it's incredible and at other times it's not, you know, his serve is one of the best in men's tennis. And uh, as well as that, just his ground strokes are very consistent, very flat. And all of those combined together make for a very sort of difficult sort of opponent to crack, as it were. It's incredible how well he can move also being so tall. Um, some of the shots he was able to get at the net, um, it's unbelievable yeah. how he could do it. Uh, just on that match, um, the second longest Grand Slam final, uh, where does it rate? In terms of the Grand uh, Grand Slam finals, surely it's got to be in the top five at least. Um, it's certainly up there. I think in terms of tension and sort of the history behind it, I think it certainly rates up there. I think in the terms, you know, in terms of well, the greatest Grand Slam final actually happened ten years ago. You know, at the same place between Djokovic and Nadal, I think that's pretty unanimous amongst tennis fans. You know, that was five hours and fifty three minutes, and it was an absolute battle between you know, you know, two of the greats. Um, so I think that's comfortably the best of all time. I think it certainly ranks above any US Open and French Open final, I think, uh, just in terms of, you know, the sheer magnitude of how long it was and as well as the quality was there. Um, so, yeah, I think it certainly would be at the top five because I think you'd have the 2012 Australian Open final uh, as well as Federer and Nadal's final in 2008 um, at Wimbledon. You'd have... Federer Djokovic at Wimbledon in 2019 when Djokovic saved two match points against Federer. And I think Borg and McEnroe in 1980 at Wimbledon as well probably uh, rounds out that top five. But it certainly was one of the great you know, slam finals and I think it'll be an instant classic for many, many years to come. Indeed. Uh, and moving on to the rest of the, the men's field, um, we had some good performances by quite a few players. Uh, Berrettini in particular getting through to the semifinals and having some tough competition that Alcaraz and Karina Buster, um, Ojai Aliassim, uh, 
you know, falling in a five-setter with Medvedev looking like he was he was going to win there and get through to what would have been a semi-final, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Shapovalov also, or Shapovalov, I don't know how to say his name, to be honest. <laughs> but, um, also impressive. Yeah, certainly a tongue twister, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Impressive beating Zverev um, and a five-setter with Nadal also. Um, who impressed you in the men's field? Uh, I think Felix. Uh, Felix Ogelius team uh, from the bottom half of the draw. He impressed me like most by far, I think. Um, his road to the quarterfinals was really tough. I think, yeah, you know, in the second round, he had Dadovic Fakina and he came through in, you know, four sets, which were all tiebreakers. So that was a really long match for him and he came through there. Um, in the third round against Daniel Evans, who's been in really good form, uh, especially at the ATV Cup, uh, he was brilliant. Uh, and of course, in Sydney, making the semifinals as well. Uh, so he was, Daniel Evans was in good form and he beat him in straight sets, I think. The straight sets? I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, anyway, whatever it is, you know, he beat him and he did really well. And then uh, in the fourth round against Chilich, uh, you know, who's always a tricky customer, you know, he's a Grand Slam champion. Uh, he beat him in four sets and, you know, nearly, nearly got past, you know, the world number two. And it was a really impressive tournament for Felix. It's his third straight Grand Slam quarterfinal. Uh, obviously making it at Wimbledon, uh, the US Open semifinal, now quarterfinal again here at Australian Open. Uh, it was a really impressive tournament from the Canadian and I'm really looking forward to seeing how he goes for the rest of the year. Indeed, and um, it, that was in straight sets, that match against Evans. Um, yeah. And it's looking good for Canadian tennis, Shapovalov also. How did you rate his performances? Um, Shapovalov did really well to make the semi, uh, quarterfinals. I think he kind of, in the second round, I think against Kwon Sun Wu, he had a really long five-set match. Um, as well as that, I think against Laszlo Jair in the first round, he took a, you know, he dropped a lot of sets in this tournament, uh, but he did really well, you know, beating uh, Zverev in straight sets, you know, being world number three, you know, that's, that's really good, regardless of, you know, whether Zverev played, you know, not at his best or whatever, you know, to beat him is still an impressive achievement. And, you know, to come back against Nadal, that was huge. Um, I think it was just a slight drop in intensity in that sort of fifth set, which really cost him. Uh, you know, dropping that first game in the fifth set really just kind of killed the momentum that he got from you know the last two uh, last two sets. And uh, it was still a good performance from him. And we'll look to see how he goes the rest of the year. I think another performer of the tournament that I think he didn't mention is Gail Monfils. Uh, Gail Monfils had a great tournament making it to the quarterfinals. Yes, he benefited from Djokovic not playing, but he beat everyone in front of him. Uh, you know, he got past Christian Garin in the third round and Kekmanovic in the fourth and really, really came close to, you know, making it to the semifinals, unfortunately falling to Berrettini in five sets. And uh, always an enjoyable one to watch there. Um, we can't talk about the men's without talking about, you know, the, the best Australian. Um, Dee Manor got through to the fourth round um, where he lost to Yannick Sinner. Uh, how did you rate his campaign? Uh, he did the absolute best he could. Um, you know, the draw opened up for him. Obviously, Casper Ruud, who was the sort of top guy in his part of the draw, pulled out, I think, with injury. And it really opened up for him, and he made the most of it. You know, got past, you know, the first three rounds, I think, all in straight sets, I think, and set up a match against Sinner, um, who, you know, obviously we all know is one of the rising talents in the game. Although he fell in straight sets, I think it was still a great, you know, great tournament to make the second week here. Uh, at the Australian Open, and hopefully he can take that 
sort of momentum into the season because um, in terms of being the Australia's premier tennis player, he really needs to, you know, step up in ranking because I think, you know, he's had a he's had a long time now in sort of the top, you know, 20 to 30. Uh, I think the highest was at, you know, the top 15 in the world. I think, you know, it's time for him to level up uh, in terms of his level of play and really crack into, you know, the elite of the next gen, like, you know, Sinner, Alcaraz and, you know, even Sebastian Corda. Sure. And just finally, um, Stefanos Tsitsipas, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he, did he go in the semis last year also, or short of the final yes. last year? Um, yes, that's right. Is he struggling to, you know, make that next step into consistent finals? Uh, what's what's holding him back? Uh, I think with Tsitsipas, you know, he's, I think the Australian Open, there's just something about this tournament that he really enjoys. Uh, I think at the US Open and Wimbledon, I, th- I don't think he's had many deep runs. And obviously last year, French opening made the final, uh, which was really incredible for him. But, um, you know, Tsitsipas has always been, you know, at a consistent level. But I think on hard courts, you know, his, his game doesn't really match up well against Medvedev. Uh, and he's lost to him twice in a row now at the semifinal stage, um, this time in four sets. Uh, but I think, you know, he's still a consistent player. And I think his strengths lie sort of in the play. Um, and I think really he's going to be one of the one of the big favourites this year for the French Open, alongside Nadal and Djokovic if he if he plays. Um, so I think you know he had a very successful tournament making the semifinals. Um, I personally didn't have him you know making the quarters uh, over the likes of you know Bautista Agut or, or Fritz, who we nearly lost to in five sets. Uh, but other than that, you know it was a good tournament from him. I think less so from Alexander Zverev. I think. Of all the big players at the tournament, he was the one that struggled the most. You know, despite making the fourth round, he lost to Shapovalov, and I think he's got a record of 0 and 11 now against top 15 players in Grand Slams, which is, you know, really, really disappointing. Okay, to finish things off, uh, we'll move on to the the Sports Central Australian Open awards. Um, the first one I think is pretty easy, at least uh, on the men's side of the draw. But um, your matches of the tournament. Um, if I had to choose matches of the tournament, I think the first one that comes to mind is uh, obviously the men's final, five hours, 27 minutes. I think it's pretty unanimous. That was the match of the tournament. Uh, I think uh, the second, I think the second place, I'd probably have Medvedev's quarterfinal against Felix Ogele FC. You know, that was a really high quality match. And I think both players, you know, really gave it their all. You know, both players, you know, Felix had match points, uh, uh, match point just one and he had chances to you know put that match away but Medvedev really fought back and showed why you know he's one of the best tennis players in the world uh I think for a third place um probably Steph the uh, Tsitsipas versus Fritz I think um that match was really high quality and um you know Fritz I think I think played better than Tsitsipas on that day and I think just in some key moments really failed to capitalize and you know Tsitsipas you know fought hard to get through to the you know, next round, the quarterfinals. It was a it was a tournament that seemed to have a lot of real battles in the games that, and really coming down to the mental side of things a lot also. Um, and from the women's, the women's side of the draw? Well, I think the main match that sort of sticks out, I think, is Osaka versus Nismova in the third round. Um, that match was incredible. I think um, the level of play from both players was, I mean, absolutely like mind boggling the way they were able to hit winners, just like both throwing body blows at each other, just left and right. And 
Um, seeing Nesimova, who had a really tough, you know, last year, get it done against the defending champion was huge. It was a shame because it robbed us, you know, of a Bardi Osaka fourth round, which I think, you know, a lot of tennis fans have wanted to see for a really long time. Uh, but nevertheless, it was certainly the match of the tournament on the women's side. And I think if I had to pick a second place, uh, it'd probably have to be Cornet versus Halep uh, in the fourth round. You know, that was a slog, absolute slog. Both players, you know, fighting so hard um, to stay in that match. And Cornet uh, obviously pushing through to make her first quarterfinal in 63 appearances, which was a really incredible story. And moving on to the performer of the tournament, um, but you're not allowed to pick either of the champions for this one. So who kind of you know, was the most impressive? Uh, on the men's side, I think, as I said earlier, Felix. Uh, Felix played really well. Um, if I had to sort of give up one, two, three, I think Felix was really good. Uh, probably the best sort of player, I think. He performed really well. Uh, in second place, I'd probably have Gail Monfils. Uh, Monfils, he had a really tough year last year on tour and, you know, obviously winning in Adelaide this year and then coming through to the quarterfinals and nearly making the semis was huge for him. And in third place, I think I have Matteo Berrettini. Uh, Berrettini was so, so good uh, this year. He's made, I think in his last four sands, has been quarterfinal, final, quarterfinal, and now semifinal. So he's really showing himself to be one of these consistent players, you know, in the big time. And um, he had a great tournament. And honorable mention probably goes to Taylor Fritz uh, for making his first ever fourth round appearance at the slam. Okay, yeah, Berrettini definitely... Um seems to be an up-and-coming superstar um and finally the disappointment of the tournament um i think you've alluded to them a bit um on the men's i actually forgot to mention the women's side uh, performing of the tournament oh yeah uh, so we'll go back to that quickly um danielle collins uh i think was my performed the tournament uh obviously making the final she you know really showed her heavy hitting style of play and also how she used it you know very cleverly you know to take time away from you know people on serve and she got a lot of breaks of served throughout the tournament. Um, in terms of second place, I think, you know, Elise Cornet, um, you know, making the quarterfinal. She beat Muguruza, Zidancek, and Halep en route to her quarterfinal appearance. Um, and it was a really wonderful story. You know, she's been on tour for so long. Um, you know, in 2009, I think that was the year, you know, she lost a fourth, she had match points against, you know, I think the third seed, Safina, and then she lost and missed out on making the quarterfinals. and. You know, 13 years later, she's made it now. Um, so that was a really brilliant performance from Cornet. And uh, it was really, really impressive. And I think Madison Keys as well. Uh, she made the semifinals, obviously losing to Barty. Uh, you know, she won in Adelaide as well and was coming off a huge run of form. But nevertheless, you know, to beat all the players she did, you know, to make Badosa look, Badosa and Krejcikova uh, look fairly weak is, you know, really difficult to do. And she certainly did that. Uh, in terms of struggles, um, for the men, uh, it's pretty hard to go past Alexander Zverev. Uh, you know, he played really, really poorly against Denis Shapovalov. You know, uh, Shapovalov didn't, uh, you know, even play, you know, ridiculously out of his mind. He was good, but certainly not, you know, at the level where, you know, he'd always beat, you know, a world number three. And I think uh, it was pretty disappointing from Zverev considering he was one of the pre-tournament favourites, really you know, coming off a huge run of form, uh, winning the tour finals and all, the, and all that last year. 
It was really disappointing to see that. Uh, as well as that, Andre Rublev, the fifth seed, uh, going out in the third round, of course, to uh, Marin Cilic. That was also pretty disappointing. Uh, and on the women's side, I think the two that come to mind are Gabinia Muguruza. Of course, she went out to Cornet in the second round. And Annette Contevea, uh, who also had a good uh, run last year, also went out in the second round to Torsen. A few to choose from in the women's uh, this tournament. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thanks for coming on to show. I think that wraps up our Australian Open special. Uh, we'll continue to have weekly discussions of tennis on our weekly roundup and then maybe for the other Grand Slams we'll do some some more podcasts but um, yeah how would you on scale of one to ten how would you rate this uh, tournament Tusha? I think in past years I think this certainly I think it's probably the greatest tournament since in since 2017 I think you know it ranks right up there you know I think out of ten I'd probably give it a nine you know it was it was so good you know historically you know, both singles champions, both men and women, you know, Barty winning the first in 44 years for Australia and uh, Nadal winning 21 uh, from two sets of love down uh, was really impressive. And as well as that, just the level of matches we had throughout the tournament was, you know, really high. And, uh, you know, it was a great tournament and certainly can't wait for SCA. Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back with more later on. Goodbye.